In Temple Emmanuel's weekly Shabbat sermons, Rabbis Wes, Michelle, and Eliza share reflections, wisdom, and teaching to enrich your mind and soul. You can find the video archives and podcast versions on templeemmanuel.com. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's so great to be with you all. It's actually not only Shabbat Shalom, it's also Chodesh Tov. It's the new month of Tevet, and it is also Hanukkah, so Chag Urim Sameach. We have, Michelle, what are you doing? Just wondering here. Okay, just moving a table. Anyway, the, uh, so welcome. We've got such an interesting uh, issue to tee up. Uh, the poet William Blake said that you can see the entire universe through a grain of sand. The grain of sand that we're going to look at is Ma'os Tzur, that happy little song that we're singing uh, every night when we light our Hanukkah candles. And the, the universe to which this grain of sand is going to give us uh, access to is the world of anti-Semitism. Uh, and the reality, how do we uh, create a space of light and warmth and happiness uh, when there's the reality, this is a weird kind of day, uh, <laughs> when there's the reality of, of anti-Semitism in the world? So let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Baruch ata Adonai Elohim Asher b'charbanu mikol ha'amim v'natanlanu et torato baruch ata Adonai notein ha'torah. So how do we do? How do we do happy and warm and light and candles in the reality of anti-Semitism historically and the current uptick that we have? So Moos um, We're going to look at Moos as a window into that. Uh, let me ask. Uh, uh, so I'll just point out that. Um, our Sidurim that we use in the conservative movement, both the daily Sidur and the Shabbat Sidur, have kind of already taken a posture on that point of view, which is, dear reader, dear prayer, dear worshiper, dear person who is lighting your, your Hanukkah candles, I actually don't want you to study the words of Moosur. You're going to actually not encounter the words of Moosur. Uh, it's, it's all those stanzas, five, six, seven, however many stanzas, it's too many, and it's too sad, and it's too hard. So we're going to do kind of a, uh, so if you look at the, at, the, at the handouts, our daily sudur takes this uh, multiple stanza song, and rock of ages, let our song praise your saving power, you amid the raging throng were our sheltering tower, furious they assailed us, but your help availed us, and your word broke their sword when our own strength failed us. Furious they assailed us, that's about what we get, and then on the, um, uh, Shabbat Sidur that we have, uh, you get a little more, but also you're protected by our movement Sidurs from the troubling reality of what Moos Sur is about. And then when you look on pages three and four of the handout, Art Scroll, the Orthodox Sidur, you get all the stanzas, and it's bloody, and it's challenging, and it's, uh, you know, it's like the old bad joke about the kid who misses Hebrew school and comes back and says, what countries did we get kicked out of last week? That's what Moosur is about. And then in the end, it kind of ends with a prayer for 
bloody vengeance. That's the only thing that's going to save our day. That's Ma'osur. So um, I want to pause and, and just ask my musical colleagues um, who know such things about liturgy, um, give us the lowdown on Ma'osur uh, and what is it and how did it get to be in this spot in Jewish life? So I was showing Alisa before uh, we started that this booklet has been with me for 30 years. And uh, somebody sent it to me from, to Argentina from Israel. And it's the Hanukkah blessings. And everybody, I would got invited to do the Hanukkah. And here's the sixth stanza, all right, in yeah. the back. And if I'm completely honest with you, I never pay attention to these stanzas at all. I only knew two stanzas, Maotsur and then Yevanim Nikvetsu Alai. Right. And that's it. So I never actually even bother to, I know it's bad, but, and you know, I know I don't even, never bother, you know, to, to look into the right. meaning of it. So I want to just say, um, I'm 60, I've been doing Hanukkah candles all my life. I never until this Hanukkah actually even read Ma'osur. I never was even curious about this issue. And what turned me on to it was Dara Horn's masterpiece, magnificent book, People Love Dead Jews. And her book, People Love Dead Jews, made me realize that her concerns are the concerns of the person who wrote this. So what I want to do, because I think many of us share your predicament, Elias, we've never actually done it before, we've never studied it. I just want to look at it and actually read the words. This is something we never do when we light Hanukkah candles. And why don't we just take a, I'll start and we'll just go around and read these stanzas. Um, oh, mighty rock of my salvation, to praise you is a delight. Restore my house of prayer, and there we will bring a thanksgiving offering. When you will have prepared the slaughter for the blaspheming foe, then I shall complete with a song of him the dedication of the altar. So what you have, this is a framing paragraph, and what it has already at the outset is slaughter and blaspheming foe, right? So that this, this writer is saying, give us our temple back so that we can offer a thanksgiving sacrifice when our enemies, our mortal enemies, who always hate us, they hate us, they hate us, they hate us, but we're going to be able to defeat them, and then we're going to be so grateful, we're going to offer Thanksgiving him to you for defeating our enemy. And that's just the outline, that's just the framing of this. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I'm surprised by what troubles you in this. This is kind of bread and butter Judaism. We have it at Pesach. Right. We have it at Purim. Right. We have it here. I mean, right. th this, and, and by the way, it's not that we're going to go slaughter. It's asking God to be right. our defender. I understand. I'm just saying it's a little bit of a uh, welcome. To Dan is just joining us from finishing his early bird service. Um, it's just, uh, it, it, it just, it, it, right, it's a resonant theme, but now it's going to continue with they hate us, they hate us, they hate us. And, and the writer of this is not going to spare any uh, a chapter. So, Elisa, you want to pick up the next one? Sure. Trouble sated my soul when with grief my strength was consumed. They had embittered my life with hardship with the calf-like kingdom's bondage. But with his great power, he brought forth the treasured ones. Pharaoh's army and all his offspring went down like a stone into the deep. So we start with Passover. We start with the slavery in Egypt. Okay, uh, Elias, keep going. Uh, actually, you know, I would like to read English. This is not English. I don't know what this is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is not English. So, Michelle, can, can you do it? Sure, I'm happy to. Okay. Um, by the way, this what, what Elisa just read, we actually read every day in the Song of yes. the Sea. 
in our daily liturgy as well. Yes. Okay. <laughs> they hate Sorry. us as a part of every prayer. Keep okay. going. To the abode of his holiness, he brought me. But there too, I had no rest. And an oppressor came and exiled me. For I had served aliens and had drunk benumbing wine. Scarcely had I departed my land when at Babylonia's demise, Zerubbabel came. At the end of 70 years, I was saved. So this is Babylon, right? This right. is Babylonia. This is Nebuchadnezzar destroying the first temple. Okay, so nice Hanukkah lights. We deal with Egypt. We deal with the destruction of the first temple. Dan, you want to pick up with to sever the towering Cyprus? Page four, Kirot. And you can take off your mask in our holy space, Dan. <laughs> yes, so we can hear you and see. Spaces. Right. Yes. Uh, to, uh, to sever the towering Cyprus sought the Ag Agagite, son of Hamadatta, but it became a snare and a stumbling block to him, and his ignorance was stilled. The head of the Benjaminite you lifted, and the enemy, his name you blotted out, his numerous pro uh, progeny, his possessions on the gallows you hanged. So this is the Purim story. So in each case, they want to kill us. You know, the Pharaoh wanted to kill us, drown all the newborns. Babylonia, the Talmud describes it was a bloodshed, and Nebuchadnezzar was just blood, blood, blood. Of course, Haman is, uh, you know, very much pre-biblical Hitler, genocide of everyone. And this is what we're talking about with the lakas in the oven and the kids with the dreidels and the Hanukkah gelt. Um, you're looking at me <laughs> quizzically like, what's the question? Yes. Right, what's the question? Okay. Now, uh, Greeks gathered against me then in Hasmonean days. They breached the walls of my tower. They defiled all the oils. And from the one remnant of the flask, a miracle was wrought for the roses. Men of insight, um, eight days established for song and jubilation. So finally we get to our, the current crisis, or the current moment of desperation and the current salvation. And then, so you've, you've gotten uh, all these chapters of they want to kill us and we're in mortal danger and God saves us. And then comes the end, the last stanza, which is about vengeance. Bear your holy arm, hasten the end for salvation. Avenge the vengeance of your servant's blood from the wicked nations, for the triumph is too long delayed for us, and there is no end to the days of evil. Repel the red one in the nethermost shadow and establish for us the seven shepherds. And the commentary notes the seven shepherds is a, is a motif from the prophet Micah, and it's interpreted by the Talmud to be uh, different biblical characters who are going to save, uh, save Israel. And at the end, by the way, uh, a modern embodiment of that is when he was prime minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke at Auschwitz. Um, and, you, and, and they were actually, they arranged to have you know, Israeli Defense Force jets flying over while the prime minister of Israel is speaking at Auschwitz. And that's kind of the vision here, that in the end, the world is not going to change but we're going to have Israeli defense. We're going to have F-15s flying around. Don't mess with us, right? That's how it ends. Now, here's my question. This is just so, it's such a rich uh, topic. Why I what do you think about that bloodstained history? And what do you think about the judgment of our community, the conservative community, to kind of keep that on the down low, like it's in there, but the best way to engage it is to not engage it, and let's just sing and eat our latkes. Uh, and what are all the compromises that are going on in that conversation? This feels very much in line with Hanukkah and with particularly the rabbi's vision of Hanukkah. I mean, the rabbis take a military victory and they take a, a military action, which is itself 
in some ways totally straightforward and in some ways a little bit complicated because the first act of that war was to kill a, a, a Hellenist Jew who had who had defected and was was willing to do what the Greeks wanted. Um, but they they get rid of that whole story and and just do this story of light and miracles and and oil that lasts for a long time. So it feels very much just in line with that that we're we've we're we're bringing up that story and then our Cedar is like but we don't face the military victories we just look for the joy and the blessing and the goodness so at least also right, right. yeah also not for nothing but like when was the last time you saw conservative jews do the whole of any six stanza <laughs> song <laughs> i think i, I i'll you know, get back to you on that uh, Michelle, following you, you following you, too, you know i don't understand this class is too much humor i don't know what's going on today uh, Alisa, I grew up, I don't know you guys here in America, but I grew up with the idea that when I was taught in Hebrew school or Jewish day school to sing Alanisim, I always, we always had to do the following. Instead of Milhamot. And instead of Milhamot, because we don't celebrate Wait, can you know, you military. Oh, yes. Yeah, instead of saying the wars. Doing the 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 um, how do you translate um, marvelous wars. instead of wars, wars you put Wonders. in miracles yeah. miracles miracles, miracles. Right. Wow. so that right. reminds me you know every year at Purim time you have that beautiful family Purim reading and we have the song about Haman hanging from the gallows a once there was a wicked wicked man and Eileen Beckman and I sit down every year to rewrite the words of that song because. Because you know we got little little people, right. and we're singing about Haman hanging so, from the gallows. It's yeah, so it's interesting to notice that you know why why the rabbis or sages or anybody didn't eliminate the last chapter in 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 the Purim story about butchering all the all the people that follow Haman. Haman. Right. So we I'll have it there, and there right. are numbers. How many numbers is like uh, one hundred and thirty thousand? Yeah. Yeah. So the blood yeah. comes with our story and here's my and, and by the way the, i think there's a very current very contemporary debate that this whole thing surfaces which is about uh, dara horn's book so she i mean it's a magnificent book as i i shared with an email with the congregation i think it's just a transformational book it, it transforms how you see history and the place of jews in the world and I, i've not read one review that said uh that there's anything inaccurate about her book every word is horrifying Every word is horrific. Every word is true. And every word is you're just like, you just can't believe the many ways and places and times in which the Jewish people have been despised in the world. Mm. And there was an interesting uh, conversation that Dara Horn had with Abe Foxman, the former ADL uh, director and also a survivor. And, and he said, um, I don't disagree with the book. I accept the facts of what you write but it's, it's the conclusion that you draw from, and there's not enough hope in your book. So I want to ask you, um, and, and that's the kind of the critique, which is if we, if we accept that people love dead Jews, if we accept that on most sure we're going to look at all these civilizations where they love dead Jews, then uh, where's the hope? And also I want to talk to you guys as educators. I mean, we educate kids, our own kids and the children of our congregation. How do you educate kids how do you educate the next generation to uh, this history in a way that makes them want to not bail on this history, but to be a part of it? So I, I think we do, we're doing it 
a disservice by not actually going into this text. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about two things. Um, this reminds me of Grimm's fairy tales and then the Disney version of Grimm's fairy tales. You know, so if you read the original fairy tales, they're really, they're really not nice stories. There's, there's, there's blood and death in, in these, and they were meant as cautionary tales for, so the children from a young age would understand the complexities of the world. And then Disney comes along and changes everything and makes everything all bright and light, you know, like, like what we do with the Miles Tour. Um, so I think as, as educators, uh, I think th that we need to actually not be afraid to, um, to teach our children uh, that the world isn't, um, isn't balloons and light and roses, um, that we need to actually make them cognizant, whatever, what, in, in the appropriate way, make them cognizant of the, of the difficult, of the, the, uh, of the of situation as Jews and the difficulties of the world. I so really let me just double do click on that. Mm. I mean, all of us teach our kids in different ways. Um, do you do that? I mean, do you actually expose our kids to the brutal reality of Jewish history? Um, and I, because I, mm. I, I just have to say, I, and it was also so interesting about this is how it's changed. When I was trained at the seminary uh, in the 90s, um, there was a guy there named David Wolpe, who was an assistant mm -hmm. to the chancellor at the time. And I remember being at a speech that David Wolpe gave to the, of course, since then we know he's like the great rabbi of our movement, of our generation. Uh, he's been the rabbi at Sinai now. Does he do the six stanzas? And I don't know. So, <laughs> no, I, based on this, I think he doesn't. But, but then he was, a young, you know, he was a younger version of himself. And he's, of course, as you know, an electrifying speaker. And what he said was, and he was charging future rabbis. He said, stop talking about anti-Semitism. Start talking about why, wh and this was the age, the 90s was the age of why be Jewish, right? Uh, why should Mikey and David, I mean, David could go off to college and, and, and sing in any kind of show. Mikey could do any kind of thing. Why should they choose to be Jewish? And if you talk about Ma'osur and all of its bloody reality, they'll bail. So instead, talk about Shabbos, talk about tzedakah, talk about tikkun olam, talk about ahavat, whatever. Talk about love, don't talk about hate. And that's how I was raised as a rabbi. I heard that in the, in the auditorium of the seminary by the assistant to the chancellor of Shorsh at the time, David Wolpe, and that stuck with me. And it, so how do you balance that idea of uh, teach them love, teach them tikkun olam, with Dan's point about we don't want to be doing Disney World. We want to teach them the real stuff. How do you balance that, Aliza? So this week, I taught our fifth graders the Hanukkah story, but I started actually hundreds of years earlier because I think it's important if you understand the historical trajectory of Alexander the Great initially and then of Antiochus III, who um, waged the battle to actually conquer the land of Israel and take over and who allowed the Jews to have control and then you know, go forward, and the and the the idea wasn't so much that they wanted to get rid of Jews as they wanted to have a stable empire, and the only the reason that that Antiochus the Fourth cracked down so harshly on the Jews is because there was a rumor in the Jewish community, and they thought that Antiochus had been killed, and so they rose up against the Greek over uh, like the Greek rulers of the area and drove them out of town. And as a crackdown measure, they came in and then they they imposed all these crackdown measures and then they took away Torah and then they did all these things, not because they were against Jews, but because they were against anyone that was going to endanger their empire. And that feels like a really important teaching. It's not always that the people hate Jews. It's that people want power and control. And in every generation, that's, that's a reality. It's even a reality in our world. So to me, 
that's a way to, to share that message. It's true, it happens over and over and over again for the Jews, but maybe in this case it wasn't just that they hated Jews, but that they wanted a, a not okay. problematic population. So can I just can we just double-click on that, because that's also like a deeply important trope that happens, which is, and I'm wondering whether that's apologetics in the following way. Mm -hmm. I was talking about, I've been teaching this uh, People Love Dead Jews piece to my sisterhood class, and... Um, I was talking about w with one of the learners in that class about the chapter about the execution of Soviet poets. So this is this is Soviet Jewish writers uh, who tried their best to be good communists and they tried their best to be uh, loyal servants of the former Soviet Union and Jewish, and they were all killed. They were all executed brutally. And this gentleman that I was talking to about it said, "You can't read that as anti-Semitism because they killed everybody." And this, it feels like, it, which to me, I experienced that as apologetics. Like, it's obviously anti-Semitism if you kill Jewish poets and Jewish artists. That's, that's killing Jews is anti-Semitism. And if you say, well, yeah, it's not really anti-Semitism, they killed everybody, feels to me like apologetics. So are you confronting the brutal reality when you teach that way? For sure. I mean, we still also talked about a bunch of people getting killed and being forced to eat pork and being forced to abandon their values. But I, I think... When we see everything as anti-Semitism, that's also problematic, right? That that limits our ability to respond in the moment to each individual situation. And instead of being able to say, ouch, this hurts me now because of X, Y, Z, we say, oh, my God, this is agonizing because of the entire history of Jewish reality. And, and mm. to me, that's a different – we want to equip future generations. And in this, I, I sort of agree with David Wolfe that we want to equip – future generations to be able to respond thoughtfully to any kind of intensity that they encounter. And the more triggered and charged we are, the less able we're able to respond. Elias? So uh, I went to see my mom down in Argentina, and I was watching a lot of TV those days, and I, I turned on one of my favorite soccer channels in Argentina, and I was watching, and there is a reporter interviewing the head of the Argentinian Soccer Association. Uh, soccer is my big sport, so I was watching and paying attention. And then the guy, the, the reporter says, I need to ask you a question that nobody ever asks. Why is it that there are no Jewish referees in soccer? And the president of the Argentina Association says, that's not true. And if it will be true, they will never get there because Jews don't like to work hard. They like money. That's and the reporter's reaction was, he cracked it up. He started cracking up. Right. And, uh, and then there was a whole thing of the ADL thing in Argentina, asking for, for the guy to apologize. He apologized. If I heard, you know how they apologize, people right. apologize. If I, if, I, if I heard anybody, not saying what I said was wrong. You know, if I heard anybody. Anyways, so I honestly think that taking a, bigger perspective that our experience here in America, and for sure you, the four of you, have had a very different experience growing up as Jews that I had. Um, I think that countries go over periods. Periods with Jewish people uh, are much better than others. And it could be 50 years, could be 100 years. Think about Napoleon. Napoleon was the first you know, one to give um, emancipation to the Jews in Europe, first country. And then, 150 years later, the Dreyfus case, you know, things like that. And uh, in every country has ups and downs. So the cruel reality is that, I have to say, I'm sorry, yes. but, you know, we are hated. So, Elias, you're the father of two teens. 
and they grew up not in Buenos Aires. Uh, they grew up here in the holy city of Newton. Um, talk to us about, how, you know, like, is there a risk of Mikey and David just bailing on, like, who wants to be part of a despised minority when they could pass? They could pass. So and they if, could if be not despised. So how do you deal with that? So thank God I have Schechter. So they have to teach. Schechter <laughs> teaches all the hard stuff that I don't want to teach. Thank you, Schechter. Fabulous <laughs> job. Years ago, uh, the, the boys were little. And uh, I remember it was a Sunday afternoon, and, and they were so cute, cuddling, and we want to play soccer. And I had to leave because I had, I had been invited to sing El Maler Rahamim for an event of the Argentinian Jewish community remembering the bombings in Argentina. And they said to me, Daddy, Daddy, why, why, why are you leaving? Where are you going? And, and Lorena says, well, he has to go. And then I thought, does it make sense for me to explain to them why? Why would I bring suffering about, you know, the many people who I knew that were blown into pieces, you know, in Argentina, and I'm going to remember them. But so what in about a way, you feel, in a way, yeah, in a way, I feel like I needed to protect them. Uh, but, you know, Michelle and I experienced this, and, and I, I strongly believe not even now, uh, I believe before and now even more. You always say, send your kids to Israel. Yes. Send them to Auschwitz. They will have a completely different vision of what Judaism looks like. Why is that? Because... Okay, by the way, I just want to say that I, you know, I, I've never said that, uh, send them to Auschwitz. I've always said the opposite. I've right. never, no, right, I understand you said that, right. And my thought has always been, I was never a, a, a fan of the March of the Living. Not that I'm against it, but my own thinking is, if I could be in Israel or anywhere else, I'd rather be in Israel. And all the more so, if I could be in Israel or the camps, I want to be in Israel. So, so, that, so, so tell us your thinking on that. I think it's very simple. You need to know where you're coming from in order to see the reality of these days. Israel doesn't make any sense without what happened before for centuries. Centuries of persecutions and, and killing and, and, and horrible things that happened to us. Wow. And so, but just before, Michelle, and I want to hear you. I know you're on that trip and have a lot of thoughts as well. But so for Mikey and David, you have two teens. And in a way, we all have, we all have our own Mikeys and Davids uh, in our community. How do we teach a rising generation about the reality of what you just said without them wanting to bail on it? Uh, you know, I, I'm not worried about my kids. They have been brainwashed a lot, <laughs> so they are not going to bail. No, but seriously talking, uh, my, my usually my, my, my way of teaching is uh, we can be proud of so many things. There are so many beautiful teachings we can learn from our own history and traditions and do good in the world, but also know all this that happened to us, mm. and it will continue to happen to us. Michelle. Yeah, I, I think the answer is lovingly, right? In, in the sense, I, for me, I shared with my children what we experienced in Poland that was very powerful and really important, and it's part of a story that they heard sitting on our couch listening to their Safta speak about her childhood in Poland and what it was like to be... Uh, to be stood up in front of a class and and told, see, look, children, she may look like you, but she's a Jew, 
and she's different. And facing the anti-Semitism and the persecution that she faced in her real life, but but told to them in a way that it, it's they see their safta sitting before them now, having been raised in Israel, being a strong and and proud uh, member of our Jewish world, mm. and they're able to hold both truths. At least I hope they're able to hold both truths from a very young age that, yes, we do have anti-Semitism. Yes, you know, they tried to kill us. They failed. Let's eat is a part of our tradition. Right. And it's not all of it. We, right. we, have to, we have to actually carry both. And I think that's the reason that we do abyssal of this, right? We do a little bit every day in our prayers, and then we pray all the rest of the things. We do a little bit of this in our holidays. Mm. It's there in the Ma'ot Sur, but that's not what Hanukkah's about. It's with us, but it's not us. Mm. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, Dan, Wait, I, no, so, so in, in these two articles that we read, I, I can't remember if it was um, Jonathan Sachs that pointed out um, that he wasn't even quite sure why the Maos Tzor was was even um, used for as a Hanukkah, um, you know, um, right. uh, tune, uh, uh, you know, poem, because it really, I mean, it really is just, well, not just, but but it, it is, a, um, it's it's a description of our history, um, and I mean, it does make it does make sense in a certain sense, but just the idea that um, that for some reason it it got connected to Hanukkah right. um, was was an interesting point, yeah. I thought. Um, I want to I want to pivot and, and end our class by asking you to think about something out loud with me that I've been thinking about uh, deeply, which is uh, this is not a spoiler alert. Uh, the end of Dara Horn's book. Um, so she it's twelve chapters. Um, chapter eleven is Merchant of Venice, which is uh, every chapter. I'm just telling you read this book. It is just so powerful. But Merchant she talks about how both Merchant of Venice is filled with anti-Semitism. It's about Jew hatred. And the Jewish people have been gaslit because if we say it's about Jew hatred, then we're whiny, vulgar Jews, right? So the proper thing is to say, I'm Jewish, and I read Merchant of Venice, and it's nuanced, and it's not about Jew hatred. Um, it's very gaslighty. But, and, and she talks about how she teaches this to her 10-year-old kid, and her 10-year-old kid mom says, Mom, I never want to hear this again. This is horrible stuff. And that's, chap that's chapter 11. And then chapter 12 is... Um, she talks about uh, there's you know the three up the three attacks of American Jews in the last three years. There's Pittsburgh, San Diego, and then there was a spate of attacks in New York and in New Jersey, uh, culminating in the attack on Hanukkah of the rabbi in Muncie with a machete. And she talks about that she just quotes the treatment of this in our news sources, including the news sources that the people in this room, the five of us, read, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and the and she's just quoting that basically provides quote-unquote context, right, which is to say it exonerates the, the people who killed and attacked uh, Jews and, it, and, and blames the Jews for being attacked. It's our fault, and here's context why what they did, why they killed us and why they attacked us, et cetera, is not really a problem. It's actually justifiable. Uh, you have to understand it. And she talks about how we would never do that with, uh, you know, with attacks of other minorities, but it's done to Jews. Okay. And then at this point, at this point, she, you know, she says, I, I give up. And you read this, and one despairs. It's really hard. Actually, in many ways, the hardest part of the whole book was, was the response of our media to the death of Jews in New York, New Jersey, just a few years ago. 
and because you just wonder like, oh my God, what, what's left? The New York Times justifies killing Jews. That's literally what happens. The Washington Post justifies killing Jews by talking about context. It's just so appalling. And then her pivot, and this is what I want to really ask, like, so where does she get hope? And in the end, she gets hope by doing Dafyomi, which is the daily study of, of Talmud. And she joins uh, this Dafyomi, and her mother-in-law, who had never done it before, joins this Dafyomi. And uh, every day, they are in dialogue with ancient voices, and they are in dialogue with contemporary voices. And, they, and she says, you know, when all she was reading was the headlines, she was just losing hope and strength and didn't know really where to go. But when she started reading Barachot, the, the, the first tractate in the Talmud, and she started studying it with other people, all of a sudden she just had hope and energy. And she talks about how everything that you read in those ancient books helps you understand your current world and your current headlines. Um, here's my question. What do you think about uh, the response? What in the end is the response, the helpful response that we want to live and that we want to teach to our children? Um, and do you think something like Dafyomi, do you think learning, do you think creating an island of spirituality at Temple Emanuel is, is enough of a response? Um, it changes our world. Does it change the world? I, I would say there's a, there's a potential that it ends up burying your head in the sand, like an ostrich. Right? In other words, you could get so involved in the, in the Dafyomi that, and, and how beautiful the text is and, and, and the learning that you are very, very easily avoid uh, the reality of the world just outside the window. Um, so I, I sign up for that. In other words, I, the, the world outside our window is just so horrifying to me um, in so many ways that I'm really only happy when I'm at 385 Ward Street or 40 Montrose Street because the world itself is just so ugly and problematic in so many ways. And so when I was reading her book, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If Dafyomi will do it, sign me up. But then I thought, I'm changing my world, but I'm leaving the world but, unchanged. But she's not saying, right, go dive into Dafyomi and escape and, and leave the realities of the world. She's saying she found hope and sustenance and possibility within our sources. And to me, that that speaks a lot. There's this great song in uh, the movie The Prince of, of Egypt, or maybe it's in the Joseph. Uh, actually, sorry, not in The Prince of Egypt. It's in uh, Joseph, um, and which is a whole different animated cartoon. <laughs> um, uh, uh, heavens, look at the world through heaven's eyes. Have you heard this one? It's this amazing thing where, where you have this idea of we, we, we humans can only see so much. We have to look at the world through heaven's eyes. And I feel like when you encounter Daf Yomi, you, you get that. You ca you're able to look at the world through heaven's eyes. You're able to see bigger than just yourself and your own little story. And therefore, it's not that anti-Semitism is only a story of they, of, of, of suffering, right? It's, it's also a story of triumph. 
It's mm. also a story of possibility. It's also a story of resilience. It's also a story, you know, when you look back and you see that our ancestors endured and created beauty and created light. They, they lit a candle. Even right. so, you then have the strength to continue to light your candles in your time. So let me ask a question about, about this. Um, I, in my own mind, um, I, when, I, when I read People of Dead Jews, I felt very much the same way as I felt when I read Cast and The New Jim Crow. Because The New Jim Crow and Cast made me fundamentally rethink race and racism and historic racism in our country. And, and my hope would be that um, the non-Jewish world would read People of Dead Jews and that it would make them fundamentally rethink anti-Semitism. But here's my point. Um, what made Cast for me so powerful was learning about it with a black American community, um, the Western Avenue Baptist Church, and you know, um, and Jeremy Jeremy Battle's congregation, and we we did that for four months last year. And so it was not just an internal Jewish conversation or an internal white conversation but a black American and white American conversation dialogue. And, and Lisa, you properly pointed out, out to me at the very outset that it's much more limited if all you do is, is talk to yourself um, and that you really have to talk to the other for real progress to happen. Um, and I'm wondering, do we do enough of that? Um, you know, I'm like, I think 100% of my life is talking to Jews about Jewish stuff. And um, it makes me, and I've just never had a, a skill or knack or is almost any experience with talking to non-Jews about Jewish stuff. Uh, should we be rethinking that um, as a way to begin to heal? I can, uh, tell, I can tell you that on Friday night, two weeks ago, we had a visitor here in our community, Ed Gaskin, who had just come to celebrate Shabbat with us. Mm. He had written this stunning piece, uh, I think last year, where uh, a few years ago, um, where he spoke about how after the shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue, he went to synagogue, he showed up as a kind of, as an ally, and then he never stopped going. And, and he made this a part of his practice to be there with the Jewish community. And then he shared that there was another piece that he had written about having gone, um, as he did, to the Asian community and sitting with the Asian community in the face of the anti-Asian hatred that has been happening in America and how profound that was for him to be able to be an ally to communities when they are, when they are hurting and then see them enjoy. And, and I think I, I was so touched by his example because I, I look back and think there are, are limited times, we certainly have tried, but there are limited times when we have really put right. ourselves into another community right. at their time of, of challenge. And I, I, looking at how meaningful it was to me that he was there, right. I thought perhaps we could do more. We'll do more of that, yeah. Um, I, I, I agree with you, Michelle. I think, and our, I think all of our center of gravity is much more comfortable with Daf Yomi, like opening up a Jewish text and being in dialogue with Jews at Temple Emanuel about a Jewish text. But I, th I do think the Ed Gaskin story and others suggest that we need to, to have conversations with other people as well. Uh, Eliza. 
uh, optimistic um, story uh, within our own worlds. Um, we have Luis here, one of the people who help. And Luis, it's, I believe he's from El Salvador, and I, I speak Spanish with him all, every day. And, you know, occasionally he would come to me and he would say, what are you, what are you guys celebrating? You know, whatever Jewish holidays. And he would say to me, normally, he would say, can you make me some copies from your Spanish Jewish books about the meaning of the holiday and leave it in my mailbox? Mm. You know, he has one next to the water fountain. Uh, so I do that. I, I make copies of, you know, Hanukkah Purim and things and leave it there for him. And he's grateful that he's learning. So there is hope in the world. No question about it. And even in the most horrible times in our history, every every time you look, there is somebody who wasn't Jew, Jewish who helped the Jewish people in a great way. So there is hope. And Daf Yomi, it's a great way for us to learn, to learn about the blessings. But the blessings should be for us to use how to deal with the world outside, to interact with people outside, to learn from other cultures, but also to be prepare in case something bad happens. I think also at its essence, if you understand the music of Maotsur, you see that that song is actually a song of hope. And I'll tell you why. The melody of Maotsur, if you look at the way that the words match up to the melody, makes no sense. It, it's totally bogus. Uh, the reason is because it's a, it's a German bar song. And so what's so interesting to me is our ancestors took sort of the popular, you know, the top 10 song of their day and put these words to it as if they could change the, the zeitgeist of popular culture around them to be more sensitive to the Jewish experience. And for generations, we've been singing this song about our tsuras and our challenge and our struggle to this popular melody. And I think that's very much a prayer that, that someday the popular knowledge around us would be aware of our own struggles just as we would be aware of other people's struggles. Um, and maybe then the song would disappear. Mm. Well, could you guys close our class out by singing the first stanza of Moasur? <laughs> but only the first. <laughs> only the first one, yes. Do you guys know can it? Sing the sixth stanza. <laughs> you, you can sing, why don't you sing the first and the sixth? Let's do the sixth. Okay. <laughs> can we just do the first? <laughs> Nekom nikmadam abadecha meuma arshaa giorchalanu vein ketslime yara deche admon betzel salmon akem la nuro im shiva beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah. But. Okay, so what I want to just say is I'm, I'm allergic to ending with uh, a nice gift wrap and a bow. And so the song that you sang, um, Michael Bonin sent us a piece um, called Jonathan Sachs on the case of the suppressed stanza. So the, the song that you sang um, was, is about vengeance. And Jonathan Sachs, according to this article, was actually embarrassed by it um, and couldn't... Uh, and, and couldn't justify it. And this, you know, Jonathan Sachs, who wrote books and books and books, um, uh, was something that embarrassed him. And I'll just close this, this thing out and then have you sing the part that people know. Here we encounter an <laughs> irony for Jonathan Sachs in editing and translating a 21st century C. Dewey found himself in a dilemma 
On the one hand, he wished to do justice to the historical record and publish the long-omitted sixth stanza of Ma'osur, yet on the other hand, although 21st century Jews needn't fear 12th century persecutions, Sachs, a chief rabbi who was knighted and awarded a peerage by the British crown, found this stanza embarrassing. His solution was not very different from Ma'osur's to publish and conceal simultaneously, uh, and Sachs did this by fudging the translation. Um, so it's just interesting. To, I love, again, not ending with a bow tie with everything neat. The song you sang embarrassed Jonathan Sachs. And in his, his, his Sidur, he couldn't quite publish it because the notion of Jews taking vengeance and et cetera was just something he was uncomfortable with when uh, many people feel like that's, and actually the author of the song feels that's actually the only real response because the world's not going to change, so we have to change. Uh, so thank you for that. Thank you, Michael Bonin, for the Jonathan Sachs piece. And now can we end with the first paragraph of Moasur? <laughs> just something that is uh, comfortable. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom, Chodesh Tov, Chagurim Sameach.